Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, this week's episode is Volume 4 of the Great Rock Stories series. Volumes 1, 2, and 3 have all had great download numbers, so, well, Here's number four for you. I've had so many great guests on the show over the last two years, and I know not everybody listening right now has probably checked out every single episode, and that's okay, don't worry. So this is a nice way to not only highlight the older interviews, but also maybe open some eyes or ears, maybe, to a new audience as well. Now, firstly, if you're not listening to this on the Vintage Rock Pod channel, then also give us a follow, subscribe, like, or whatever it's called on your podcast app right now, because I release a new episode every single day. And you can only get all these episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So whatever podcast app you're using right now, just search for Vintage Rock Pod and give us a like, follow, subscribe, whatever it's called. It's all free. Check us out and you can get all that brilliant classic rock content every single day. Right, on to the episode then. We dive back to April and May of 2021 and we pick out some brilliant stories from my guests of that time. And we're going to start with someone who's been in the news here in the UK, well his band have as well, in the last few days or so. Punk band The Damned have finally reformed, the original members that is, and played their reunion tour over here in Britain. Now they've had dates in London, Manchester and Glasgow, they've all been played to the time of this recording. Now I've seen some of the videos from the shows and it's fantastic. Fantastic to see all these guys back on stage and the hug between Captain Sensible and Rat Scabies is phenomenal considering the, the history and the past that went on between them. Now, the band in full of the original members, Dave Vaney and the singer, Captain Sensible on bass, Brian James on guitar, and as I said, Rat Scabies, he was the drummer. Now, in this clip that I've got lined up for you now, Rat Scabies from episode 30, I ask him all about how the reunion plans finally came together. And then kind of moving forward a little bit, there's a lot of recriminations within the group. There was, there was fallings out and you, you kind of left on bad terms, shall we say. Um, and then last year when the news broke that the original lineup were reforming for a series of gigs, it, it was quite a surprise. It was a nice surprise to come out of the blue. I mean, how did that all come about then? It's Dave Anian is okay. uh, the one who really wants to do it, I think. It, it's funny, you know, you, you go through these sort of things with band members and stuff, you know. What I didn't want was it to be too late <laughs> just because of some personal issues mm. that really, you know, didn't seem that big a deal to me. And uh, I didn't want us, three of us to be standing around a grave saying we should have done the reunion, you know? That's very Unless true. it's mine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing it was a, an all or nothing. All, all four of you agree or it's not going to happen type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And was there, what, what was that first meeting like then when you, you all got back in the room for the, for the first time? Was there any, I don't know, animosity lingering? Was it all buried the hatchet? We, we were all grown up at that point and that's it, move on. This, this is the bigger thing. It was grown thing. up, really. The first five seconds were a bit uncertain. You know, is he going to hit me? Am I going to hit him? <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it was kind of, we all know why we're there. We all know what we're what we want to do and what we want to achieve from it. So, you know, it was painfully obvious. You just have to put everything away until this is done. And that's, you know, and try and let people know that you're not the person they think you are. We spent so many years sort of touring and, and 
being mates and doing all of that kind of band thing that it you know you got to jog your memory as to what that was and why you know you thought Dave Vaney was funny or why the captain had an interesting idea about <laughs> where we should go for lunch or you know the great songs that they that he wrote you know all of those things you have to take back on board because you reject them when you fall out and there's animosity so you kind of have to remind yourself of what it is that you like about those people the wonderful rat scabies there as you'd expect from a man that was part of the early punk scene of the 70s he's got some great tales about how he asked sid vicious to be their lead singer this is long before any of them were famous there's tales of malcolm mclaren and the sex pistols and the anarchy tour and of course about the damned and their history and hits check it out on episode 30 right now Right, next up, we're going to hear from former Survivor guitarist and songwriter Jim Peterick, as well as writing hits like Eye of the Tiger and Burning Heart and I Can't Hold Back and many others for that group. Jim, long before all that, was a teenage star in the Ides of March, a band he's still part of and plays in today. Now, in this clip, he talks about finding success at such a young age and how Led Zeppelin's famous riot house party really wasn't for them. Just a couple of years later, you had the, not just a Billboard charting song, you had a number one, didn't you? And didn't you write this song to, to try and win your girlfriend back or something like that? Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I fell in love with this girl when I was 17. She was 15. And um, one day she said, you know, Jim, I want to try dating other guys. You're my first date. You know, I go, and I was so depressed, you know, and uh, we were on the road and I, I just was playing the blues. <laughs> And the guys are going, come on, snap out of it, Jim. You, you know, life goes on. And I said, well, not for me, you know. Um, and one day, the same girl starts calling me up for rides because I had a cool car. I had a 1964 Plymouth <laughs> Valiant. And uh, she said, this isn't a date, Jim, but can you take me to modeling school? Uh, okay. Well, that happened week after week. Finally, I said to myself, all I am is your vehicle, baby. And that sounded like a pretty catchy word vehicle and uh yeah i i thought of this riff you know and i'm like yeah that's kind of cool anyway the band we learned it i went to larry's house where we rehearsed i showed the band the song came up with the brass parts it came out once in number one we're on the road at that year in the summer of 1970 with Jimi hendrix and janice joplin the grateful dead uh, Almond Brothers again, and so many others, and living the dream. You know, we were just oh Led Zeppelin. You know, we par- partied with Led Zeppelin. How can you forget? <laughs> you know, and of course, the kind of party that we were used to it was like you know, uh, birthday cake and soda. Well, this party wasn't <laughs> quite the same. In their penthouse suite at the Hyatt House in uh, in Winnipeg. But we learned really quick what their kind of partying was all about, and we weren't really comfortable with it. So we went up to Robert Plant and says, well, thank you very much, Robert, but we're leaving. <laughs> we got out of there and we went across the street and had donuts at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> that, was, that was our comfort zone. I mean, we were 19 years old. You know, what did we know? 
Incredible stuff. Incredible. And like you said, you guys are still together near on 60 years later. I mean, so what is it? What, what is it about the chemistry within that band that's, that's kept you going for so long? And obviously you've been in different bands since, but what is it that, that still holds you all together? Well, that's it's a brotherhood. You know, it's more than a band. It's a friendship. It's the world's greatest bowling league. Uh, it's it's everything. Uh, we we never really fight. If we fight, we work it out. You know, uh, we're like brothers more than a, a group. Really, it's a band of brothers, and I think that's what kept us uh, together. And everybody has their job. You know, I'm the songwriter. Uh, Larry's the the technical, the engineer guy. Mike Borch takes care of the bookings. Bob Berglund does all the uh, the the books and the taxes, and we're like a little corporation, you know. If, if America was run as well as the Ides of March, it would be a great country. <laughs> but it, we we love each other, and uh, it's been so much fun. Maybe the four of you should run for president. There you go. Uh, <laughs> We're thinking of it. Yeah, indeed. The brilliant Jim Peterick there. On the full interview, you'll hear the famous story of the phone call from Sylvester Stallone that set up Eye of the Tiger. The incredible story of how he was unable to make a flight with one of his bands and that plane crashed, killing the members on board. There's so many other stories on there as well. It's well worth checking out. It's a brilliant full interview and you'll get that on episode 27 of Vintage Rock Pod. Well, from one big hit maker to another, let's go behind the scenes and find out the origins of one of classic rock's real iconic tracks. All Right Now by Free is a proper rock staple, isn't it? Now, I spoke with Simon Kirk from the band, who also went on to form Bad Company with Paul Rogers, of course, and he tells the story behind this huge hit. Now, this came on the back of um, a disappointing gig, shall we say, up north, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And we played to a university crowd. Now, university crowds, they're a very discerning bunch. We had this kind of medium-paced, loping beat, you know, on, on a lot of our songs. We'd never had a real sort of rabble-rousing type song. So at the end of this gig, we hadn't even left the stage and the, the clapping had died down. And to, to cap it all, we had to walk through the audience oh, no. to get back to our dressing <laughs> It was one of those. It wasn't like at the back of the stage where you could do a quick exit. So by the time we walked, you know, through the crowd, back to the dressing room, we were like, oh, geez. And I, I believe Paul Rogers said, you know, we need a song that can, that people can dance to. Plain and simple. That's all it was. And um, All Right Now was born in that uh, little dressing room at the back of the, of the gig. And um, I believe it was Andy who came up with the actual phrase, it's all right now, baby. He started bopping around the dressing room, you know, trying to coax it out of himself. And um, he came up with the phrase. And Andy and Paul, you know, they worked on it for the next couple of weeks. And um, we started doing it at sound checks. And uh, we did it at several shows. It started going down really well. It, it just changed the whole atmosphere of, of the gig. And then we came to record it on the Fire and Water sessions, and it was instant. You talk about instant there, but it wasn't like you recorded it in one take, did you? It took a few takes oh, to, to get exactly how you wanted it. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, for the, the drummers out there, I was playing dun, 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 what we call eights on the hi-hat, one, two, three, four, five, yeah. six, seven, eight, one, two, three. That's how I originally played the drums, and it was, ah, it just, it didn't really seem to swing. So I changed the drum to, to the, the right hand, to the bump. Bam, 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 what we call fours yep. on the hi-hat. It changed the whole 
uh, atmosphere of, of the beat and hence, you know, the song. I believe, Paul, we did about 20 takes with... Crikey. I think we ended up doing, like, using take number five or six, which went all the way through. And that's the measure of a good song, that you could play it again and again and again and not get tired of it. And what were your reactions then when you, you got to hear it back and oh. you got it down and you're happy? It, it, we were knocked out. And in fact, um, we did this in Basing Street, where Island Records had their studio. And it was pretty late at night. And, um, you know, we finished it. And uh, Chris Blackwell, who was, the you know, the boss of Island Records, had an apartment above the studio. And I believe Paul said, we got to get him out of bed to listen to this. <laughs> the engineer was like, what, are you crazy? He said, no, 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 you gotta, he's got to hear it. So we actually called him up and uh, he came down to the studio. So we press play and um, I'll never forget, he's at the end of it and yeah. he said, it's a hit. Yes. He said, but it's too long. <laughs> it's got to be on top of the pops. I mean, that was the golden key in those days. If you're on top of the pops, yeah. you're guaranteed at least a top 10. He said, you got to do, we have to do an edit. You have to get a razor blade and cut a piece of, you know, intestine out of the song. <laughs> and we had to find, they had to find this uh, piece that we could cut out. The edit actually wasn't very good. Uh, you can hear it, uh, most people know. But it brought it down to about three minutes and 10 seconds, which was just perfect. And um, yeah, uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Definitely one of my favourite interviews for sure. Simon was a great speaker, told stories about his friendship with Led Zeppelin's John Bonham, a crazy story about leaving a shark in a hotel bathtub, plus, of course, his time in free and bad companies, friendship with Paul Rogers, that sort of stuff. Well worth checking that one out. Scroll back to episode 31 or just search for Simon Kirk Vintage Rock Pod and you'll find it right now on your podcast app. Right, still to come, we've got stories from a Woodstock veteran, a man who was part of one of the biggest bands in the world in the late 60s, and we've got a great story about the LA sunset strip scene of the 80s too. But let's hear from another Woodstock veteran first, Rick Lee. He's been part of the band 10 years after for like, well, forever really. As I said, they famously played Woodstock. Alvin Lee, the band's guitarist, was one of the real greats of the guitar, without a shadow of a doubt. Now, I spoke with Rick on episode 29 of Vintage Rock Pod, and we talk about the band's breakthrough records. 1967, that was the year you brought out the first album as well, and then a couple of years later you brought out two huge albums, didn't you? mean Stonehenge, which really put you on the map, and, and Shush as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, the thing that put us on the map in America was Undead. Um, we were making Stonehenge at the time, but we weren't going to get it ready in time. It was a studio album. It was quite experimental. So we quickly recorded um, a live album in, in the pub next door to Decca Studios. They slung the, the cables over the roof. They'd recorded John Mayall a couple of times, I think, and Zoot Money as well, all the bands that were on Decca at that time. And we made that and put that out quickly in, in the States because prior to that, uh, the first album had been released in the States, but nobody really knew it existed. It more or less escaped. Um, but Bill Graham, who was the promoter at Fillmore West in San Francisco, heard it and sent a telegram to Chris Wright and said, if you're ever in America, please play my venue. Give me the details of the deal you'll require. Um, so Chris then went crazy to get the money together to get us over there. I think he got a... Yeah. Um, 
in those days you'd get tour support from the record company. So I think London Records, which was Decker's American arm, put up some money, and I think he got some publishing advances on on Alvin's songs. Um, and that's why we did Undead. That came out. Um, and it was actually Woodchopper's Ball uh, was this song that really broke us in America. That that grabbed everybody's attention for some reason. I, I never quite figured that out, but there you go. <laughs> um, and then, as you said, we moved in and we did uh, Stonehenge, which is pretty experimental, had lots of different uh, silly things on it. And then Shush, which uh, which had the really the big track on that one, was um, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, which was also then banned in America, which, of course, made us even more popular. <laughs> Absolutely. Sting in the Tail was a more radio-friendly album because 10 years after, you're famously not a singles band. You weren't out to get a radio, AM radio play, pop radio play, that sort of stuff. But you still managed to have some really big hits. And you mentioned I'd Love to Change the World as a big hit in the US. And, and the one in the UK, which was a, t- a top 10 hit, went really big, was Love Like a Man. Although the record company or whoever it was that decided on who were going to release it managed to chop it from seven minutes to three, didn't they, when they released it? Well, we, you know, Alvin certainly wasn't happy about that well i don't think any of us were but he he certainly wasn't um and i mean it's it's pretty silly because the the guitar solo just goes pew and that's it just one <laughs> note because we it was in the studio we jammed it in the studio you know yeah so alvin said well if you're doing that then you've got to put the full version um on the b side um and they said well we can't do that it's too long and he said yes you can you put it at 33 then a third revs like an like an LP in those days, yep. um, which finally they agreed to. So you had the A side at forty five and the B side at thirty three, uh, which was um, a first, I think. Yeah, I think it was, and I think it had uh, issues for jukeboxes at the time as well, didn't they? Oh well, that that was a problem. Yeah, we were in the south of France, and uh, Leo and Chick and I went out for a drink to. Uh, Albert's bar. Albert was the local taxi driver, and they had a little bar just down the road from where we were recording in Cap Ferrat, south of France. David Niven, uh, the film actor, had a house on the opposite uh, promontory. And um, went, went in, and um, somebody got up, and th- I think the people in the in the bar had recognised us, and somebody got up and put the, uh, the single on, but they put the b-side on and so it played at uh, at 45 so it was, t- it was twice as fast <laughs> as it should be but uh, the bizarre thing was they got up and danced to it um <laughs> and when it had finished they applauded us you know and we had to sort of take a bow you know it, it was bizarre so uh, we finished our drinks and left <laughs> we went down the next night and the same darn thing happened. They repeated the process. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Talk about deja vu. Rick Lee from 10 Years After. The full interview goes into detail about his trip to Woodstock, how they almost didn't play the festival. He talks about Alvin Lee and much more as well. As I said, episode 29 for all things 10 Years After. Right, let's stick with the Woodstock veterans now and hear some crazy stories about the festival itself told by Doug Cosmo Clifford. Cosmo, of course, was the drummer with legendary Credence Clearwater Revival. I've actually interviewed Doug twice for Vintage Rock Pod. The first time was this one, way back on episode 28. Now, I've chosen this story from the interview where he goes through in detail how the events unfolded at Woodstock and why Tom Fogarty refused to let their set be included on any of the official Woodstock releases. And then we, we ran down and got in the limo and went to the airport and then flew all night 
so when we get to where we're going, we were supposed to go a certain way. And, and they said, well, that's all different now. We're going to have to get you fly into a, a smaller airport that's closer because we can't use the roads. Yeah. What do you mean? There's, it's not raining or anything. <laughs> they said, no, but there are hundreds of thousands of people that are, have come to this thing. And they, there was a traffic jam, so they just left their cars in the, in the street where they were, and, and they walked in. And we said, you can't be serious. Said, oh, yeah, there's, there's 500,000 people here. And now we're going, oh, okay, there, there, there is no way there's going to be 500,000 people. Make a long story short, they, had to, they flew us in. A two-man helicopter turned into a three-man helicopter. <laughs> John was sitting in the middle. The pilot was in the pilot seat, of course. And I'm sitting on the, I've got my leg out the door and I'm <laughs> and one of those bubble tops that looks like a dragonfly. And I'm, I'm holding the door because otherwise it's, it'll be flapping in the wind, beating my leg. And so my, and my right, right leg was out of the helicopter on the, on the skid. I'm with my right leg. I'm holding the door semi-shut, my legs in, the, in there. And then uh, I'm holding on to John's uh, safety belt, and my left cheek is on his seat. We're showing the seat. So we're flying in, and it was a perfect time to come in and see this wonderful, magnificent sight because the sun was, was going down. And as we came up, we came up over this little rise, and there they were, there they were. And I said, it's a patchwork quilt of humanity. I remember saying that. I said, I remember that for the rest of my life. And I said, at least four and a half hundred thousand people here. They're, they're, it's, it's unbelievable. And so the, the helicopter was landing next to a three-story building. And the, there was a window open on the top floor. And two beautiful ladies were looking out, waving at each helicopter that came in. And it was Joan Bias and Judy Collins. <laughs> I said, I think this is going to be a good one. Then, then, it, then it became a kind of a nightmare because we were supposed to headline. Uh, we, I don't know how our equipment got in. To this day, we had a show to do, and that that was the focus. We weren't going to go running out and take drugs and shuck our responsibilities just because other guys were doing it. We were there to play a show, and we there were a lot of problems um, about that. Uh, rain, electronics, people not going on because of the rain, problems with going over their time, a lot of time <laughs> limit. Yeah. Um, so we, we didn't, the headliner got on stage Sunday morning at about one or two in the morning. And uh, we played, I thought we played all right, considering uh, the situation. And uh, John, John said we didn't play well, well and wouldn't allow the, us to be on the, in the movie or on the, on the record. So nobody knew that we were there. And quite honestly, uh, I, I think if we weren't there, uh, there wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have happened. And I'll, I'll explain that. Uh, all the big bands who had real managers were sitting on the sidelines waiting for somebody credible. And at that yeah. time, we were number one, we were number one in the world in record sales. And we were number one concert draw in 69 and 70. So we're number one in, in the world. So they're waiting for somebody to go in. All the big guys the who and this and that Jimi Hendrix and all of them. So when we said, okay, we'll do it. 
they all jumped in. Now, what happens if we say, nah, you guys don't have enough experience. We're going we're gonna to pass. I don't think it would have happened. Wow. I, don't, I honestly don't. So there's something uh, to throw in there, a little historical theory, if you will. Absolutely. That's incredible stories. I mean, if you'd have said no, then, then the biggest concert in history might not have happened. That's, that's fascinating stuff. Um, yeah. Doug Cosmo Clifford there. That was taken from episode 28, which you can listen to. But also, if you're a fan, check out my really recent interview with him on a side two episode. It was called Cosmo's California Gold. He's on top form in that one for sure. And if you're a fan of Credence, then you'll want to hear what he says. And last, but certainly not least on today's episode, we're going to hear from a man who's had terrible health issues lately. Lead singer with the band Thunder, Danny Bowes. Following a serious head injury he sustained in August, which led to a bleed on the brain, Danny underwent surgery, which was thankfully successful, but he now requires specialist treatment in a neuro-rehabilitation centre. Now, given the current UK waiting lists, the band are trying to raise money to send him to a private facility and have been raising money to do so. Now, I spoke to Danny last year when he was on top form, and I sincerely hope he recovers fully following this horrific time. Now, Thunder, if you're unfamiliar, have had great success in the UK. Seven studio albums have gone top ten over here. Five of those were top fives. Their hard rock, kind of blues rock style, earned them fans from the late 80s onwards. Now, in this clip I'm about to play you, Danny talks about how a trip to America, and LA's Sunset Strip in particular, led to them ripping up their act and starting the Thunder that we know today. Another story, if you don't mind indulging, it was when you were uh, you went to Los Angeles, I think it was, and you went to see some of those big hair bands and everything out there at the time, and you were with your former band, and you came back home, and that was it. That trip turned you on to, to becoming Thunder, didn't it? Yeah, I think that was very much instrumental in, in the change between Terraplane, the band we were in, and Thunder, the band that we went on to form. Mm-hmm. Purely and simply because we'd been with Terraplane with um, CBS or Sony as they are now, uh, for three years, we made two albums, and we made just about every mistake a band could make. <laughs> uh, we felt like we'd been sort of pushed into a sausage machine and pumped out the other side. And we felt very kind of upset. We waited nine years to get our record deal. We'd been rejected by every record label in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them more than once had rejected us. So we went to Los Angeles purely and simply as a, or we went to New York as well, actually. We went to New York for a week and stayed with a friend of ours who was a backing vocalist on a meatloaf tour that we'd done probably three years before. Mm, And we went to stay with her for a week in New York. That was amazing because she was so busy. She was doing adverts. She was doing sessions for people. She had this kind of incredible work ethic and we just followed her around for a week. And it was incredible to think that somebody in her position was so busy doing different stuff all the time. It, it was so kind of um, instructive and instrumental for us in kind of governing our work ethic going forwards and dictating what we did. Then we went to LA and it was a complete opposite. <laughs> we met a guy who told us we could stay in his place years before. When we got there, turns out rather than being the palatial pile he told us it was, it was a shoebox and there was no room. <laughs> so we couldn't stay there. So we rented a little motel, having crashed the car also and written the car off. That night, the first night we arrived, I was just very, very, very tired and uh, just forgot what side of the road I was on. And we had an almighty crash. Um, nearly got arrested by the police for being a bit flippant and um, stayed in a rotten old motel, 
And then we spent the rest of the week doing meetings. We I don't know how we got them, but we did. We got meetings with some fairly heavyweight people at record labels and asked them for advice on what we should do. And um, all of them were very nice, probably very insincere. But they took the meetings and they gave us the advice. And at the same time, we went out of a nighttime to see bands and to find girls, of course. And everywhere we went, we saw all these hair bands. And the whole thing was just so completely different to what was going on in London. You know, the girls virtually had no clothes on. The guys were prettier than the girls and had better makeup and better (laughs) hair. And, you know, you just thought to yourself, this feels so very different. and so kind of filled with energy there was so much going on the bands were some of them were great some of them weren't so great but they all had an amazing energy going on which was very lacking in london at that time so we knew that we had to put the energy into the music and it made us decide that we had to do it our way so we basically split the band up fired the manager and just pretty much started again. Um, got a new manager, met Andy Taylor. He encouraged us no end because he was so successful with Duran Duran. Yeah. Always wanted to be in a rock band. And he just kept saying to us, this is this is the kind of band I always wanted to be in. And he just encouraged us. Every time we felt like something might be a bit loud, he would say, nope, turn it up. And, you know, somebody <laughs> got a bit drunk. He'd say, get drunker, you know, drink more, play louder. Just don't worry about that. Let me sort it all out. And so he was very much kind of um, instrumental in us becoming the kind of the the attitude band that we were. So when the record labels came sniffing, we were horrible to them because we'd had a very <laughs> bad experience with Terraplane. And the more horrible we were to them, the more they liked it. And it was very strange, <laughs> but it did work. And as a result, you know, we got a great record deal with EMI and um, the rest of it's history, really. I mean, they chucked a load of money at us and, you know, within a... Within a year, we we were playing three nights at Hammersmith Apollo, which is unthinkable nowadays, really. The wonderful Danny Bowes there. The full interview is definitely worth a listen. It's episode 26 for all of that. And I'd like to reiterate sending all our thoughts and best wishes in the hope of a full and speedy recovery for him. Well, that's it for Great Rock Stories Volume 4 then. Please check out those older interviews that we've uh, played little clips of today. And don't just stop there. If you're a newer listener, then please go right back. I know it's a long way to scroll, but there really is some amazing guests and stories on the earlier episodes that seem to be a bit buried these days, given how many episodes I put out. But they do deserve your love, so please do go back and check them all out. Also, please check out the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel. The channel is growing all the time. Some nice little bits on there that are different to the podcast, so it's definitely worth subscribing. Again, it's absolutely free. All you've got to do is go up to Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, and you can activate the little bell on there as well. Well, that's it for Great Rock Stories Volume 4, then. I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks episode, of course. But until then, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them... My music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 